It's late 1719, on the island of Annabon, just west of Central Africa. The black night sky is broken by an orange light. An Annabonese child runs through a sugarcane field towards the strange glow surrounding her village. She sprints barefoot, catching her legs on sharp stalks. She can't slow down, not with what's up ahead. Her village is engulfed by fire, instigated by a pirate crew. As she gets closer to her village, she smells the scorched air, toxic with the stench of death. She arrives wheezing, scanning the desolate scene for her family. The Annabonese have suffered abuse from Portuguese colonists and merchants before, but this is violence beyond her imagination. The crying of a newborn baby splits the air. In front of one hut, as yet untouched by the flames, a desperate father is forced to take up arms against the attackers. A doomed effort. And an elderly woman leans on her cane as she watches the home she has lived in for 70 years fall to the ground. All their possessions, all their food, all their lives, gone. The Annabonese scramble to throw buckets of rainwater onto the fires. But it's useless. The girl pushes her way through the carnage, crying for her mai. She comes across a straw doll half buried in the soil. It belonged to her brother. She falls to her knees and sinks to the earth. At this moment, she spots the silhouette of a man in the light of the flames. While pirates around him raise their weapons and wail their battle cries, this man stands alone, a voyeur to the violence around him. Is he their leader? Why doesn't he do something? Does he approve? It's impossible to say. The man in question turns around and looks straight at the girl. For a second, their eyes meet. She thinks about calling to him, to plead for mercy, when she is struck on the back of the head with the hilt of a cutlass. The silent man is the last thing she sees as darkness closes around her. For a moment, Captain Edward England keeps watching the girl after she's felled, before turning his head back to the violence. His eyes filled with the same empty expression as before. He continues to watch his men ravage the village until nothing is left standing. I'm Tom Morton, and welcome to Real Pirates, the show that dives deep into the true story behind the world's most notorious buccaneers. Join us as we set sail under the black flag alongside such legendary figures as Blackbeard, Henry Morgan, Charles Vane, Anne Bonny, and Mary Reed. We'll reveal how these marauding mariners rose to dominate the seven seas, 
the terror tactics they employed to overpower their prey, and what life was really like aboard their ships. Their reputations have swollen to legendary proportions, making it hard to separate fact from fiction. Who were they? Terrorists or freedom fighters? Cold-blooded killers or heroic underdogs? As it turns out, the truth is far stranger than fiction. On Netflix, inspired by the unbelievable true story of a fake hitman, comes the new movie Hitman from Academy Award nominee Richard Linklater. At 96% certified fresh on Rotten Tomatoes, critics are calling Hitman a smart, sexy crime thriller with surprises at every turn. Starring Glenn Powell and Adria Arjona, Hitman now playing on Netflix and in select theaters. Rated R. Ryan Reynolds here from Mint Mobile. With the price of just about everything going up during inflation, we thought we'd bring our prices down. So to help us, we brought in a reverse auctioneer, which is apparently a thing. Mint Mobile Unlimited Premium Wireless. Ready to get 30, 30, ready to get 30, ready to get 20, 20, 20, ready to get 20, 20, ready to get 15, 15, 15, 15, just 15 bucks a month. So give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. Welcome back to Collector's Closet, presented by The Ohio Lottery. Let's discuss my newest prize possession, this new $10 scratch-off, the $500,000 Platinum Jackpot. The best method I've found so far to help it hold its value is to vacuum seal it. This thing cannot get scratched. What's that? Sorry, my producer's telling me the only way it could be worth up to 500 grand is if I do scratch it? Okay, well, in that case, definitely don't overprotect your $500,000 Platinum Jackpot scratch-offs. Play them. Lottery players are subject to Ohio laws and commission regulations. Play responsibly. It's 1718. The sun has begun to set on the golden age of piracy. Edward England has watched it rise, and whether he knows it or not, he now must navigate its decline. He was there in 1715 aboard Henry Jennings's Bathsheba, when the pirate raided the Spanish treasure fleet and inspired a legion of sailors to go after imperial shipments in the Caribbean. He was aboard Charles Vane's ship in June of 1718, when the fearless rogue trapped Governor Woods Rogers in Nassau Harbor in a final, desperate bid to protect the infamous pirate nest. 1718 was to be Edward England's year. He climbed the ranks of Vane's ship in a matter of months, from crewmate to quartermaster. And by mid-1718, after four years of serving under different pirates, England finally splits off from Vane as a captain of his own ship. But it's come at the worst time possible. The British have re-established their royal authority in Nassau and economic changes are forcing the pirates out of the Caribbean. Dr. Manushag Powell is a cultural historian and an authority on pirates. What happens is Woods Rogers comes along to try to make the Caribbean more profitable for quote-unquote legitimate business interests. And 
in fact, is somewhat successful because we have an environment that's slowly changing so that the high protectionist prices that made black markets so necessary are being kind of slowly eased. There is less incentive for people to engage in smuggling and black markets, and there's more disincentive for doing that. It's not just a lack of business opportunity that drives pirates out of the Bahamas. On the 9th of December, 1718, Governor Woods Rogers hangs eight pirates, signaling an end to piracy in the Bahamas. Unbelievably, the crew were themselves captured by a former pirate captain, Benjamin Hornigold, a founding member of the so-called Flying Gang. It's a warning. Hunt for Britain or be hunted by your brethren. Dr. Rebecca Simon is a historian and author of Pirate Queens, The Lives of Anne Bonny and Mary Reed. The original flying gang were the pirates such as Henry Jennings and Benjamin Hornigold who went after the wreck of the Spanish treasure fleet in 1715. And this included other pirates such as Charles Vane and Edward Teach. England himself had actually sailed with Henry Jennings. You know, how much that's really describing a gang that has a clubhouse and weekly meetings, I think is very much up to debate, but you do have a, a sense of pirates working together and in consort. The once fearsome flying gang of pirates who operated in and around Nassau are no more. What remains are scattered marauders trying to survive at the fringes of the Caribbean Sea. They're still within a world where piracy is very active and full of very notorious pirates. But what is interesting is that many of the pirates who are active at this time are all going to die within just a few years of each other. To fight back against the British is suicide. It will claim the lives of Steed Bonnet and Blackbeard in 1718, Calico Jack in 1720, and even Charles Vane in 1721. Edward England is one of the last remaining pirate captains of the Flying Gang. If he wants to survive, he has two choices. Surrender to Woods Rogers and take the King's pardon, or flee. But this newly minted captain won't surrender that easily. In mid-1718, Edward England decides against the pardon and travels to a place far away from the clutches of the empire, the west coast of Africa. Basically, the targets in the Americas are becoming less appealing because they're less profitable and they're more dangerous. And the perception is quite correctly that the British trade in enslaved prisoners was really taking off. This is, you know, the Asiento has been in place for a number of years. The Royal Africa Company no longer had a monopoly at this point in time. So there's a lot of competitors keeping prices low, people who are willing to trade with pirates because of tensions with the Royal Africa Company. And versus like, say, the East India Company, these ships are not nearly as protected. And so they make easier prey. So for all of these reasons, West Africa becomes a more appealing target for pirates that are starting to feel like the Caribbean's not a place for them anymore. England isn't the only pirate heading to Africa in the fallout of Britain's seizure of Nassau. In late 1718, around 500 to 600 pirates are active on the west coast of Africa, all with the aim of recreating the success of the Caribbean era of piracy in a new environment. Edward England begins his journey in mid-1718. His plan is simple. Seize poorly defended slaving vessels and outfit them to make profitable cruises in the Indian Ocean. He inherits a scraggy team of salt-brined seamen from Vane. 
All of them are uncertain about what the future holds ahead. But all are undoubtedly aware that whatever it is, it'll be nothing like the past. But is Edward England up to the challenge? He has had less than half a year to establish himself as a captain. Although no lucky fool lasts three years as a pirate, England may be a product of the past. Like previous legends such as Benjamin Hornigold and Henry Jennings, Edward England is, by all accounts, an educated gentleman. And according to contemporary authors like Charles Johnson, a well-mannered man. He obviously has a background at sea, probably was engaged in the enslaving trade, was a, you know, had merchant experience and seems indeed to have been pretty educated, which suggests that he had something of a middling to upper middling class background. Much like other educated sailors, aspects of England's person perfectly fit the mold of a golden age gentleman pirate. To some extent, the codes that govern the behavior of an 18th century gentleman are seen as, correctly or not, kind of carrying forth the tradition of chivalry. And that that was a bellicose code. That wasn't about, you know, having courtly manners, right? That was about how we maintain ourselves in a society where people go to war. That's kind of your mark of being a gentleman. But times are changing, and so are pirates. If resistance to piracy is stronger, easy pickings will prove harder to find. Only the most ruthless will survive. Will England's gentlemanly character be cut out for the uncertain path ahead? For now, his crew respond to their leader. He fits the mold of what is expected of a captain. But only time will tell if he's the man for the job. After all, piracy is a results-based business. If England is to prove his power, he must capture prizes by any means necessary. Steering towards the Azures and Cape Verde Islands, England and his crew capture several ships. But it's in July 1718, when the pirates capture a small snow named the Cadogan, that the trip turns sour. England has his men cut through the water, raise the British flag, and approach the snow's broadsides, where they swiftly seize control. The captain is commanding as ever, living up to his impressive resume. The pirates drag captives from the Cadogan aboard their vessel. But one of the prisoners turns the laughing faces of England's crew red-hot with fury. Captain Peter Skinner, commander of the Cadogan, is presented to the pirates. A murmur echoes around the deck. England looks around in curiosity. His men recognize Skinner, and not for the right reasons. England's bosun steps forward. Ah, oh, Captain Skinner, is it you? The only man I wish to see. I am much in your debt, and now I shall pay you all in your own coin. As it turns out, some of the sailors were once employed by Skinner, where under him, they were treated like dirt refused their wages, and mutinied when they demanded their pay. The rebels were then banished to serve in the navy against their will. While it's not uncommon for sailors to be treated poorly by their captain, it is uncommon for them to meet again after parting ways. A probability Captain Skinner was likely banking on. 
The pirates tie Skinner to the windlass and pelt him with bottles. The torture is messy, and the pirates' raucous laughter is so loud, Skinner's begging for mercy can barely be heard. It's easy to imagine England's mixed feelings watching on. Skinner is a man much like himself. Although he considers himself a man of honor, honor in this instance demands that he do right by his crew. Even if he wanted to step in, it's not like he has a choice. The crew want blood one way or another, particularly England's bosun, who steps forward once more. Because you have been a good master, you should have an easy death. A few specks of blood splatter England's lace shirt. He takes out his silk-embroidered handkerchief and dabs the stain. And with that, Skinner's body falls limp, with a hole perfectly placed at the center of his forehead. If a pirate takes a ship, they would be most likely, if they're going to torture anyone, to torture the captain and the officers. And the reason they would do that would, number one, be because those are the people that have the best information about where any gold or desirable booty would be hidden. There's no point in torturing the cabin boy. He doesn't know anything. And while this is by no means universal, a captain would be better or worse treated based on the reports of their men. So there is maybe an ideological basis to how pirates treat their prisoners going on as well. Truth be told, it's difficult to know if England approves of the violence. While a gentleman isn't averse to killing, it's the manner of the killing that dictates his attitude. You can't just walk around killing people, but if you kill people according to a particular ritual, in a weird way that affirms who you are. And so, you know, if England is in fact trying to behave like a gentleman, the ways that's gonna come out is that for other people that are holding themselves forth the same way, it's not that he can't fight them or kill them, but he's supposed to sort of have manners when he does it. Captain Skinner's crewmates are forced to watch his murder, terrified their fate will be the same. With the captain dead, England offers Howell Davis, Skinner's first mate, a chance to join his crew. But Davis refuses England's call to become a pirate. Refusing the offer is a bold move. Victims of piracy often face the choice of joining or having to suffer the consequences. The crew around England are eager to hear their captain's response. Will he give Davis a taste of what Skinner received? Or will he chain him up? degrade him and force him to do labor aboard the ship. But no, England smirks. He admires the first mate's courage and spares the sailor's life. In effect, doing the gentlemanly thing. But what's most shocking, certainly to his crew, is that England gives the Cadogan back to Davis and even stocks it up with supplies. No doubt some members of England's crew may think their captain is being too lenient. But this is the careful line any captain must walk, knowing when to lead and knowing when to follow the desires of the crew. It's a tricky business, even when things are going well, but can also heighten any tensions on board. 
that certainly can be a source of tension when you have a group of men who are from a lower social echelon and who have been attracted to piracy, at least in part, because they don't like having officers lording things over them. That if you have a captain who is obviously from a different background and holding himself that way, it can potentially create a sense of alienation. On the other hand, it can also be an advantage. England was well-liked by a lot of his men. And it's certainly possible that when you have a captain who's very capable, not only is that good, like you want someone who can read charts, you want someone who can, if possible, do some navigation. If he made good on his promises for them to capture really large prizes, then he's going to have a pretty happy crew. If he did not deliver on these promises, he would start to get a lot of pushback. So even if his crew was unhappy with him and they're pushing back against them, he could probably stop them from murdering people such as Skinner, but the crew would ultimately have the power to be able to oust him if they wanted to. And so while Edward England was in charge, he still had to very much make sure that his crew was going to be happy because if the crew felt that the captain wasn't fulfilling his duties, then that could be the end of his job. As the pirates carry on their journey down the west coast of Africa, England takes a new flagship, a large brigantine he christens the Royal James. Now that he has a new ship, England does what pirates do best. Plunder. It's spring 1719. The flotilla cruises down the River Gambia, where they take 10 ships in total. And they're no fishing vessels either. Among the list are the 8-gun Charlotte and the 12-gun Bentworth. 55 sailors from both ships join England's men, growing this ragtag crew of seamen to a sizable force. But not all of the sailors are convinced to join. Dozens refuse. The promise of piracy isn't what it once was. Nearly every port has a body tied to a gibbet as a warning of the consequences of going on the account. Those that do sign on are under no illusions. These are desperate men. What you see at the very end of the Golden Age is a shift in the dynamics of how the pirates behave and relate to each other and relate to, you know, outside society. So piracy is becoming less profitable. And for the first time in the Golden Age, they're having trouble getting new recruits in some cases. You're seeing a lot more forced men on ships. Pirate crews didn't like sailing with a lot of forced men because if your crew is made up with a lot of unhappy people, you've got a danger of mutiny. Pirating in Africa is proving more difficult than one's thought. It's certainly the case that there's not going to be as many friendly European potential protectors or people that you can bribe into being protectors and friendly ports. In general, so you're dealing either with an African population that's not at all in awe of Europeans showing up, you know, wanting to do mischief, or European factories that tend to have, you know, fortifications and armaments. Whilst traveling near what is modern-day Ghana, England's men spot two ships, the Widder and the John. The pirates' eyes glisten with visions of gold. They've successfully taken 12 ships so far but are yet to strike it rich. They intend to try their luck once more. The chase lasts longer than expected, but the pirates remain determined. 
Perhaps the fleeing ship is protecting something of great value. Or perhaps it's a trap. England is led where most pirates consider off-limits. England lets his men know the dangers that lie ahead in the Gold Coast. There's one stronghold that should strike fear into the heart of any intruder. The Cape Coast Castle, the hub of Britain's Royal African Company trade in West Africa. It stood for over 250 years. Some call it the Gate of No Return because its underground dungeons are the last stop for enslaved people waiting to be transported across the Atlantic. But England's crew are riotous. If they aren't careful, they will fall victim like countless others. England wishes to mediate the crew's homicidal impulses for the sake of survival. But he's in a tricky position. He knows what can happen when a captain refuses his crew's demands for plunder. Mutiny and bloodshed. England's quartermaster, John Taylor, senses his captain's hesitation. It lasts a little too long. Worried his captain will consider a retreat, Taylor rallies the crew to stomp their weapons against the deck to let their thoughts be heard. Ultimately, the captain is won over by his men. He grins and draws his cutlass, prompting a cheer. They attack. In the spirit of his own former captain, Charles Vane, Edward England lights one of his stolen ships on fire. He sails it directly into the two fleeing vessels seeking shelter at the foot of the fort. Just as the fireship is released, the pirates' cheers are silenced by a deafening roll of thunder as cannonballs rain down on them from the castle. Shots come threateningly close. Everywhere are explosions of water. But it isn't just the proximity that scares them. It's the sheer volume of cannonballs. Like many European forts, this one is heavily armored. The pirates are shaken, some waver, but still they hold out for the fire ship to make an impact. And it does, but their brief elation is quickly doused as the fire ship fails to spread its flames. The plan fizzles out, and the pirates are forced to retreat. For all their successes, the pirates are still none the richer. Slavers and small merchants are easy targets for a reason. They don't contain mountains of Arabian gold or piles of Indian rubies. Only desperate men would ever consider sailing under the guns of a European fort on the Gold Coast. What's more telling is that although England no doubt knew the risks, he is bound by pirate code to go along with the crew. As a result, he's led by the fear of crossing his men and losing his leadership. Whether or not the task was too big for anyone, the men are disappointed and seething with anger. And of course, many of the pirates believe it is their leader who has failed them. Damned if you do, damned if you don't. Nobody said being a pirate captain was going to be easy. Nearing the end of 1719, and with few captures since spring, the tension aboard the Royal James is close to boiling over. 
England decides to travel to the sandy beaches of Annabon, where he can clean his flagship and refit his second vessel, the Victory. In a show of faith and friendship, he gifts the Victory to his quartermaster John Taylor, with the hope they can sail side by side to double their plunder. Annabon is an island just west of modern Gabon. While the Portuguese have partial control, they have many conflicts with pirate smugglers and Annabonese natives, making Annabon a far more suitable port for the pirates than anywhere on the Gold Coast. England hopes that a bit of rest, tuna fishing and leisurely drinking will help put the heart back into his malcontent crewmen. But if necessary, any debauchery his crew need to purge from their system can be done with less risk of attracting colonial attention. Although debauchery might be an understatement for what these pirates are about to unleash. After a few days on the island, some of England's men come across an Annabonese village where they force their way into houses and sexually assault the women. Following this attack, a confrontation erupts between England's pirates and the Annabonese. The pirates go on a killing spree and in the process burn down the village where their assaults first took place. As Edward England looks across the burning ruins, he sees his quartermaster leading his men. It seems Taylor has grown to be quite popular among the men, a figurehead. Although some of the locals fight back, it only spurs on England's crew, all the more reason to carry out the slaughter. All England can do is stand by and watch, or at least, it's all he's willing to do. Better the Annabonese suffer than him. A captain is nothing without a crew, but for now, this captain seems to be at the mercy of his. In general, crews were not that easy to control. That's true on any ship because you've got way more men than you've got officers and you've got harsh living conditions. The threat of mutiny is always something that any captain is watching for and having to contend with. But yeah, managing a, a large group of men who have chosen the difficulties of life at sea and potentially the violence of piracy as like their way of living, that's never going to be an easy thing to do. And you have to kind of pull it off through a combination of, of force of personality and good political sense and also luck. While the violence is horrific, England is more concerned about his ability to control his crew going forward. Whether he senses it or not, the depravity of these violent rogues are a sign of things to come. You can make a pretty good argument that piracy in the, the last few years of the Golden Age becomes more violent than it had before that the sort of willing compliance of merchant crews has maybe gone down a little bit and that the reluctance to use violence if you don't have to, um, the reliance on threats but not often carrying them out has maybe waned a little bit. So you see just in general, you see more people being murdered, you see more ships being burned, you see more sort of desperate acts of destruction, which is not to say that all of the stories suddenly become true, they don't, but there's an uptick in violence. But for the Annabonese, it's the same story. Pirates, navy, merchants, they're equally evil. Lucky for Edward England, no one asks questions when a native village is set on fire. 
Only burning down a European settlement will turn heads. Edward England didn't really do much to stop it. And this is honestly probably because he was the product of his time and from where he was from. And this is during the time where pretty much any indigenous person was not going to be seen as equal to another sailor. They're not going to be seen as civilized. And so to Edward England, this wasn't really as much of a big deal to him. I'm just sort of pushing back against the idea that pirates are uniquely violent. There's definitely a geographical and racial component to the way that violence gets carried out. But in that respect, I think pirates are acting as part of the larger, very violent society in which they're implicated. This event does put England's character into question. It's unclear if the gentleman pirate actually opposes violence as contemporary authors suggest, like Charles Johnson. Johnson describes England as a man who has a great deal of good nature. Compare this to his description of England's crew, who he calls wild beasts of the forest who live and prey upon their weaker fellow creature. If England truly is cut from a different cloth to his men, is it because he has a good heart, as Johnson suggests? The idea that he is a pirate who is a little more mannered, maybe has better manners, maybe is less violent, more reasonable, I take that with a huge grain of salt for a number of reasons. One of them is that even within the general history, that story about England isn't really consistent in that it opens with this brutal torturing to death of poor Captain Skinner. And then supposedly England turns around and is incredibly kind to a young Howell Davis and says, you know, how about I give you a ship and how about I give you some cargo? So there's the sense that something is being done literarily here that doesn't quite ring true. The other problem, of course, is that England is an enslaver. He is certainly willing to enslave and to kill black people and shows no remorse whatsoever about doing that. And so it, it is extremely problematic to say, okay, this person is a true gentleman. He's really enhancing Edward England's reputation as being this more lenient, kinder pirate who's better to his victims than many of the other major pirate captains of the time. And so it's very possible that he tried to portray Edward England as being kind of this more civilized person versus the rest of a barbaric crew who just wants to get rid of him so they can torture as many victims as possible. Gentlemen or not, England's background is still of a higher social class than his men. This might be the reason Johnson describes him as a man of good nature. As a result of his class, England likely has a home one he will return to after piracy, if he makes it that far alive. On the other hand, England's crew are less fooled by delusions of grandeur. How can the pirates slip into a society that so viciously rejects them? The only release from being a pirate in the colonies lies at the end of a noose. The way they see it, they will live and die at sea. And as a result, they have no intention of returning to a Christian, law-abiding society. The leash is off. After the massacre in Annabon, the pirates flee. England in the Royal James, whilst John Taylor sails in consort in the victory. England's start as a captain has been rocky, to say the least. If his mission was to repeat the success of Caribbean piracy, He's further away from it now than when they started their journey. Now, as the Royal James ventures forth towards the Indian Ocean, he secretly hopes for a favorable wind. In more ways than one, 
They all know the stories of Henry Avery and the riches that lie beyond the Cape of Good Hope. The tales of booty, booze, and brotherhood in the pirate haven on Madagascar. Those times might have passed, but with few alternatives. Their futures depend on striking it rich, and soon. Luckily for England, he is not one to buckle under hardship. He has an idea that will either bring about the inevitable end, or burst open a new beginning. But it all hinges on his control of his crew. If he fails that, then these pirates will be the end of him. Next week on Real Pirates. Edward England travels to the Indian Ocean, where he finds an unlikely ally who used to sail with the now defunct flying gang. Together, they hope to rekindle the success of the Golden Age and seize a mighty prize. But the Indian Ocean is more treacherous now than it was 25 years ago. England will be tested by the British, by his new ally, and by his own men. Real Pirates is a Spotify original from Parcast, produced in partnership with Noiser, executive produced by Max Cutler, Drew Cole, and Pascal Hughes, developed by Julian Boireau for Parcast, produced by McAllister Bexon, written by Aman Khalid, sound supervisor Tom Pink, edited by Carla Flores and Rob Plummer, sound design by Matthias Torres Sole, mixmaster by Cody Reynolds Shaw, music by Oliver Baines and Dory McCauley.